Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. There's so many unprofitable stores out there, and they really do need to reduce their retail footprint in order to start seeing sales gains again. The year is 2017. Unemployment's down. Stock market's way up. Even so, we could be in the midst of a retail apocalypse with thousands of stores closing over the next two years. Sears, Macy's, JCPenney, Abercrombie, Staples, H.H. Gregg. Amazon is now worth two Walmarts. Malls are in a mass extinction, and this doesn't even get into restaurant closures. And supermarkets are even pulling back. Wither Retail. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my... Good friends at Elwood Thompson since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio is none other than Haley Peterson, senior correspondent for Business Insider, where she covers retail, uh, dying malls, empty restaurants, and all that uplifting jazz. How are you, amiga? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to finally have you here. You know I'm a big fan of your byline, and the one that really stood out this week, no hyperbole, the retail apocalypse has officially descended on America. You really believe that? Yes, definitely. I mean, we have thousands of stores that are closing, and it's really accelerated this year um, compared to the last couple years. Um, we've got an estimated more than 3,500 stores, and that's just all the stores that have been announced so far in 2017. Analysts and industry experts are expecting many more stores to announce closures in the coming months. You know, the one stat that really stood out in me, I, I know that we are we – are known as like the fat, indulgent Americans who don't take care of ourselves and we eat three Big Macs for breakfast <laughs> and, you know, we, 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 we spend the most on healthcare, have the lowest results. But then talk about bloat. You cited this stat from Morningstar. The U.S. has almost 24 square feet of retail space per person compared with 16.4 square feet in Canada and 11 square feet in Australia, the next two countries with the most retail space per capita. Now, I want to step back from that and, you know, thinking back to kind of the financial crisis and over speculation in property and the demand for property and derivatives versus actual things. Where is this huge diffusion of responsibility that banks and commercial real estate companies and everything kind of gladly take on this overcapacity? You know that there's going to have to be hell to pay at some point. Yes, and that's uh, one of the major topics that's being discussed right now at a um, big M&A conference down in Miami. I spoke to a retail uh, bankruptcy lawyer yesterday who's at this conference right now, and she said the number one topic at this conference is retail bankruptcies. She says that 2017 is going to be the year of retail bankruptcies, and everyone's talking about how this is going to impact uh, CMBS loans. Because uh, CMBS, will you break that out? That's 
commercial? Commercial mortgage-backed securities. Uh Um, So uh, these are loans that are— It's like sausage made from various different loans of, like, commercial (laughs) mortgages. So, I mean, this is going to—the retail apocalypse, so to speak, is going to affect tons of industries. It's going to affect uh, areas, neighborhoods across the U.S. that have these malls uh, near them because when these malls uh, lose these major department stores like Sears and J.C. Penny and Macy's, they can have a really hard time filling those giant uh, multi-story buildings. They Finding other tenants to fill those giant spaces is really hard when every major department store is reducing its retail footprint. Well, that's when it becomes ecosystemic because if you look at a lot of these leases and it gets into real estate jargon that if the anchor tenant leaves, if the Sears leaves, if the Macy's leaves, if the JCPenney leaves, that gives the other smaller players across the mall like say the tiny little Chick-fil-A in the food court or uh, Claire stores or uh, BCGB or or I don't know. You tell me the, the little tiny players like Abercrombie sure, and Fitch yeah. which is struggling also. It gives them an out of their lease and further depresses – the creditworthiness and the lease payments that the mall operator is getting. That's right. When these uh, anchor stores is what we call them, and those are big department stores, when these anchor stores leave, uh, that affects the stores, of course, in the rest of the mall. But it also, I mean, you you lose all of that traffic that's already drawn to the mall through those anchor stores, and that's that's bad enough. But uh, many tenants in these stores have what's called co-tenancy clauses, and that's what you were just referring to, where they have the opportunity to renegotiate negotiate their leases and get lower rents until the mall can find someone to replace these anchor stores that have left. So that means that not only are the malls dealing with lower traffic as a result of the loss of the anchor stores, but they're also getting a lot less rent. The anchor stores aren't paying rent anymore. And the middle of the mall stores like BCBG and Abercrombie & Fitch are possibly paying lower rents as a result. Now, I had to do a double take on this one stat. You cited Cushman and Wakefield, which is the big real estate research firm. Visits declined by 50 percent between 2010 and 2013 to malls? Yes. This has been an ongoing problem for years. Visits declined by 50 percent? I mean, there's an economic recovery in that period. We are at full employment, if you believe what the Federal Reserve tells you. The stock market is at an all-time high. So there are so many factors that are playing into this. A lot of what you're going to hear over and over and over again is that the rise of e-commerce is the main thing that's that's causing people to stop visiting malls. And that's definitely a huge factor here. You know, people buying from Amazon. Amazon is about to um, become one of the biggest apparel sellers uh, in in the U.S., which is crazy because who, who do you know that buys clothes on Amazon? Apparently a lot more people than you would think. Uh, they're really ramping up their fashion um, Um, assortment. And so, you know, when you have companies like Amazon or any other e-commerce players uh, and even traditional department stores like Macy's and JCPenney, when they are um, selling more and more online, what's the point of going in stores, especially when you can get free returns and there's no real detriment to ordering online? There's no burden, so to speak, to the shopper. Another uh, big reason why visits to malls have declined is because people are spending far less these days on apparel and accessories, and they're devoting a bigger share of their wallet to experiences, to travel. Now, that's not millennial cliche, 
I swear, I, I hear all these innovation consultancies come out, and no offense to you, I know you're a bona fide millennial, <laughs> but when I, I, I kind of want to gag when I hear somebody come out and say, it's about experiences, not things anymore, you know? Like I profiled Shinola, the watch company, and they're like, instead of spending $2,000 on a watch, we say you spend $750 on a watch and spend the rest on experiences. You do wholeheartedly buy the experience line? I completely buy the experience line, and that that is a broad term to include even restaurants restaurant spending, entertainment, travel. That that that's what millennials define as experiences. And then and I think part of that is because we watched what happened um during the um you know, in 2008 and 2009, we saw uh our parents losing a lot of their losing a lot of money through that, and we um, came into the job market at a time that um, was very precarious, and and so I think that we're all very conscious of um, not uh, getting into debt. It seems like there's a fear of commitment among yes. millennials. Oh, I mean, totally. I mean, I we're renting everything these they're days. They're renting everything. They're not buying cars. I mean, we've we've unpacked this several times across episodes. I mean, not owning things, not having a cable subscription. I mean, I you could do a whole show about millennials and probably get a lot of sponsorship money, which we don't have. Right. I have plenty of friends who... The subscription economy, the Netflix and chill economy. Yes. And not buying a car, instead using Uber or Lyft everywhere. I mean, that's that's really easy thing to do these days. You can even do your grocery shopping using Uber. Not buying music, you know, uh, having a Spotify subscription, having, um, you know, things that are that don't weigh you down, that you can kind of walk away from. I'm surprised any millennial pays a security deposit for rent. Right. And so, um, so I think that that's definitely a big part of why we're seeing declines in spending on things like apparel and accessories and why and, and impulse purchases as well. People don't want to just go walk around a mall to find out how they can spend money on things that they didn't necessarily need. And another thing that millennials are spending a lot more money on these days is uh, healthcare and technology. Because think about how much more we're spending to on our smartphones these days than we were a couple years ago, or even you know over a decade ago when we didn't have smartphones. So what I, one thing I, I kind of want to really step back and look at here is I took a look at Amazon's market cap. This has been an unbelievable success story. Jeff Bezos is now you know the founder of Amazon is worth. I think upward of $70 billion. It has a $405 billion market cap in 2017 compared to Walmart, the biggest retailer, erstwhile biggest retailer, $415 billion market cap. It's almost worth two Walmarts, which would have been inconceivable, I think, just a few years ago. Now it's kind of like, oh, second second nature. Uh, You've covered this before. Henry Blodgett has covered it before. Being Business Insider and various authors, like I think of Brad Stone, um, you know, who wrote the book on Jeff Bezos and Amazon. It's asymmetric warfare. Amazon is not judged on same store sales. It's not judged on comp store sales or retail margins. It gets a big pass from Wall Street, a big innovation pass. Um, Henry Blodgett, your boss, interviewed Jeff Bezos on stage, one of the very rare performances. And he's like, you know, don't invest with us if you don't have a long-term mindset. Um, He's really a visionary, a disruptor. Um, I would have thought it would have been just patently absurd for him to sell like subscription to something like Prime, which was uh, floated around in Amazon as an idea. You know, they they fail early and often and something might stick like Alexa. But I would have I would have thought if you told me when Amazon went public in the mid 90s 
that this would have been the biggest bottleneck to that story. Yes, suppose we have universal broadband, suppose smartphones and 2G, 3G, 4G is everywhere. You still have to count on the weakest link in that, namely the U.S. Postal Service or UPS. And there's always going to be cost plus that they pass on to people. So you'll never make it intuitive for people to just go online and not worry about the shipping. And yet they did. So that right now seems to be the industry standard across the board. If you're Walmart, you have to have free shipping. If you're Land's End, I, you can't really step away from these things. And these are embedded costs as your pricing power is collapsing. Absolutely. And that's why if you don't have free and fast shipping today, you're going to lose customers really fast. People just aren't going to purchase with you. They're going to find something else they like because it's so easy now to find discounts. And, and there's such a highly promotional uh, environment in the in the retail industry that uh, people are always looking uh, for the cheapest item instead of I have to have this particular item. Um, they will they will go to the easiest, cheapest, quickest option to get what they want. And it's amazing in the Amazon app. I mean, you talk about disruptive. They kind of incent you during holiday season to go in a warehouse, i.e. go to a Best Buy, uh, use their overhead, use their you know hourly workers and the like, and consummate the purchase on your smartphone because Amazon is intensely aware of pricing. Yes, you can even scan a barcode at another store to see what that item costs on uh, Amazon through their app. A couple of Christmases ago, too, and they were they were giving you like a 5% you know, a $5 rebate or something or an Amazon music credit to do that. So mm -hmm. it's like really high level trolling. But now I look at the stakes and you had this um, chart in your story on the retail apocalypse, the number of retail stores closing in early 2017. Okay. Payless shoe stores. All right, fine. I could see that hard to exist in a world where Zappos is the industry standard. Radio Shack, that's in its second leg of bankruptcy. The Limited, okay. They, you know, that, that brand is older. Family, Christian Wet Seal, BB Crocs. But you know, JCPenney, American Apparel, H.H. Gregg. H.H. Gregg is pulling out of several states. I mean, what's its reason for being? It's like a second-tier Best Buy. If Best Buy is having a hard time, why is there an H.H. Gregg? We don't have a Circuit City anymore. We don't have a Nobody Beats the Wiz. So, you know, just this constant die-off, Guess, Gander Mountain, Abercrombie & Fitch, Macy's, Staples, CVS even, which we thought was untouchable. And this is a result of just being totally overstored, as uh, some in the industry call it to me. Um, they say that about 10 percent of uh, retail square footage today is completely obsolete. And that's because we built so many stores for so long in the 90s. It was just, um, you know, kind of a free for all, all these malls expanding, all these new stores popping up. And uh, there was not really any thought as to uh, whether there would be any any changes in shopping habits at the time and whether there would be enough people to actually fill those stores. Talk to me about Sears. This thing is this this dying horse has been flogged, you would think, to death. We've been covering this as like the, the most slow-mo liquidation, the most lurid liquidation in retail history. Everybody knows out there that Sears Kmart has no reason for being right now. You've You've very deftly, and I've seen other people like Brian Sazi at the street go into Sears. They don't even bother upkeeping the stores anymore. You see broken panels. You see uh, just people who aren't there. I used to want to go to Sears maybe for craftsman tools, but I can get that elsewhere now. Or um, what is it? The Not not Sears Kenmore. What is the brand? It's Sears? Kenmore. Kenmore. Hard and... Yeah, but all that stuff has been diluted and the IP has kind of been moved on. Eddie Lampert, the hedge fund genius who Business Week crowned as maybe the next Warren Buffett when he 
did this mega merger of Sears and Kmart. Uh, this has been a major loser. What is its reason for being right now? Why does anybody need to go to a Sears? And I'm look, I'm not trying to be sadistic. I understand that tens of thousands of people are still employed at these dying stores. It's 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 nice of them to kind of stay open, but what would happen if Sears and Kmart just disappeared tomorrow? You don't feel like, you know, the retail consumer world would be missing anything. So a lot of people are highly nostalgic about the Sears brand. So a lot of people are really sad about the prospect of Sears dying. But in a lot of uh, consumers' minds, that's already happened. I uh, get emails all the time from shoppers, from people who have been shopping at Sears since for as long as they can remember, people who watched their parents shop at Sears. And back then it was an aspirational brand. And they remember flipping through the catalog during the holidays, the Sears catalog during the holidays, circling what they wanted for Christmas or you know, other other gift seasons. And so they're very, very sad to walk into the stores today and see them dilapidated and see that they want to buy an appliance. They want to give Sears their money, but they just can't find a cashier to check them out. Or someone emailed me the other day that said he went into Sears to buy a pair of boots and nobody could find the price of the boots. So he walked out empty handed. So why is corporate keeping these places open? Is it too expensive to shut them down? I mean, they'd have to take a massive charge for severance and, and liquidation and, and sales and stripping out the copper pipes, you would think, but why are they still open? These zombie stores are all across the country. So they're in the process of closing a lot of them right now. But it's they... still 10% oh, of, of its Sears and Kmart locations or 150 stores. So they're what? There are like 1,300 stores left? Yes, and they're, uh, I think they're going to be closing a lot more. I think that the 150 is just a start, and this is speculation on my part, but I think we're going to hear about more closures before the end of the year, more store closures. But um, but one of the reasons they might not be dumping them all at once is because this is uh, a year of a lot of, of closures. And when you have that much supply hitting the market all at once, it's going to be really hard to find a good price when you're selling your stores. And they, they're very open about this. Actually, there's a there's a website link. I, I don't know if you covered it before. You can go on Sears.com or Sears Holdings and find all the, the stores that they want to sell to you, all the, the compartments and everything. They're very open about the fact that this is a slow-mo liquidation. But in the meantime, you as a as a customer, I mean, you you as, as Sears corporate as Kmart, which is a total afterthought at this point. If Target's having a tough time, if Walmart's having a tough time, how in the world is Kmart going to – you know, blue light special. It sounds so 1983, right? Uh, Moody's Investor Service has said for a while that Kmart is just like not a, a viable business anymore. Is Sears a viable business? Does it make any sense for them to put any marketing spend into it, to invest anything into an app or a price comparison app? I mean, at this point, it's just a matter of lose as little as you can in the slow-mo liquidation. And that's an argument that a lot of critics of Eddie Lampert, the CEO of Sears, that's a, that's that's an argument that's often made by them is that um, this is a protracted out of court liquidation and that uh, the CEO is trying to extract as much value as possible before the company turns belly up. However, Sears argues the exact opposite. Uh, Eddie Lampert says that he is turning the company into a more nimble and what he calls an asset light company, meaning selling off all the valuable assets like Kenmore and Die Hard and Craftsman. Uh, Craftsman's the only one that he, they, of those that he's sold off yet, which uh, recently sold to Stanley Black and Decker to raise cash. But um, and 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 the company often cites the fact since it is losing so much money, it often cites the fact that it has a lot of assets left to sell like Kenmar and Die Hard and real estate, valuable real estate. 
But the value of that real estate is going to be under a lot of pressure when, like I said earlier, the uh, amount of stores, empty stores hitting the market right now is just skyrocketing. It's overwhelming. And people are hoping, and I think this is almost like a flashback to 2006, 2007 and Wall Street and real estate-backed securities, that one player doesn't just go out there and deluge the market and it's not as liquid as you would think and kind of price discovery. I know it gets in the jargon. You give everybody a haircut if you kind of jump the gun and say, I want to sell right, right. now. We're talking to Haley Peterson, senior correspondent for Business Insider, where she uh, really brilliantly covers retail, restaurants, malls. Um, you should look at her work at, at businessinsider.com. Give me your Twitter handle. H.C. Peterson. H.C. Peterson. Um Really, you get a lot of retweetage when you go into malls and take these photos of like of like rot and incipient rot or, you know, the entrance to a Macy's or was it a Sears where there's just like a Dippin' Dots machine uh, amid the particle board? I went into a struggling mall recently in the Richmond, Virginia area, and um, they're really trying to redevelop the mall, but they haven't actually gotten to the point of redevelopment yet. So it's just, just been languishing. And you walk through the mall, and and what sticks out to you is the fact that it's cavernous. There's no one in there. It's uh, kind of a, a ghost town in there. Um, but... Also, you notice the number of darkened storefronts. There's so many uh, storefronts that have uh, nothing going on behind the windows. And then there are some that the mall developers have tried to cover up, like giant entrances to Macy's or even smaller store entrances that I'm not sure what they previously were. But they've covered them up with temporary walls and vending machines, vending machines for soda <laughs> and snacks and ice cream and even proactive skincare. I mean, you know, the piercing pagoda. I mean, there's just no foot traffic in these things anymore. And I'm sure it goes through your mind when you're in these malls who are typically, you know, I call them the back to the future malls. Like if you remember that movie where the terrorist shootout was, that vintage, like the early 80s mall that if it was smart, like I think I grew up in Miami, the Aventura Mall was built in 1983 and it was the hottest thing. It put the other mall in town. It, it, it bankrupted that mall. This happens across the board in the United States. And by 1995, they realized that they were at the foot of something big. And if they didn't vastly expand into luxury, into Nordstrom, into the requisite Cheesecake Factory and Orvis and whatnot, that they too were going to die. And I was down there a week ago, and now there's this other reckoning that that whole mid-90s redesign is being rethought like, like, oh my gosh, there's way too much capacity in this mall for an Amazon Dot com world. And what are we going to do with all this square footage? And um, did we securitize the dead? Is it syndicated? Uh, it was unthinkable for a Macy's to step away from that mall. It's such an anchor, but they're trying everything around it. They're trying to rethink the food court. They're trying to, you know, what can you do? You could put a merry-go-round in there. You could put a little boat area. At, at, at some point, you're just pushing on a string. So a term I keep hearing is retailtainment. And um, that's something that a lot of mall developers are looking at right now. They're trying to turn malls into more of an experience so that there is something drawing you there other than the merchandise. And I know the mall that I went to that I spoke about that is uh, dilapidated in the Richmond, Virginia area. It does have a, 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 a digital billboard outside advertising Wi-Fi throughout the mall. <laughs> oh, that's that. good. Uh, so, so this mall 
is has talked about the possibility of a trampoline park. And so they've considered raising the roof on one of the former Macy's buildings to uh, put a trampoline park or a movie theater in there. And that's they're, who they're goes to movie theaters, though? I know. <laughs> so so they're they're talking about adding more restaurants or things like trampoline parks or places where kids can come and play. And another thing that they're doing is non-retail or that they're considering is non-retail sort of um, ways to fill this space. So that's apartments or uh, retirement communities, things of that nature. Are you impressed that those mixed-use things, like I'm thinking like what, West Broad Village, millennials want to walk to places. They want to be around a Whole Foods. They want to be, they want to Uber everywhere. Do you believe that that kind of mixed-use revisioning, reimagining works? So I was actually down in Atlanta recently, and I have to say that I, I visited a spot down there, and the, the name is escaping me right now. What was it, a super urban mixed-use thing? I mean, it's moving away from the suburban theme, is that it? Yeah, so it, it basically, it's a mixed-use uh, space. It's apartments. It's a It was an old factory that was turned into, it actually used to be an old Sears building, I think, uh, and it was turned into apartments. And uh, on the higher levels, and it was on the bottom, it, it's like a market. It's like an open market where it reminds me a little bit of Chelsea Market in New York City. And um, it, it, it has all kinds of restaurants and stores. There's a West Elm there and a Williams Sonoma and all these stores and that, so many that um, – in addition to – it's also uh, connected to a high line, mm-hmm. a, a walking – where people go on walks with their dogs and they take, go on bike rides. So and it leads to this mixed-use space. And that place on a Saturday is overwhelmingly crowded and mostly younger people. Are you impressed that younger people are walking into the West Elm and buying things? I mean, yes. outside of an ice cream cone or a latte? When I was there, I was shocked. I was walking around, and it's literally like you can barely— I feel like I'm on a New York City subway. It is so crowded at this spot. And uh, people are walking around with coffee or uh, anything that they've grabbed from the nearby restaurants, and they're going in and just browsing these stores. And I thought, well, this is— an excellent way to uh, draw people into stores. They're already here. They are, you know, maybe hanging out with friends. And and many of them live in the luxury apartments right above this building. Now, if only every mall operator in the world had the option to kind of bump out and retrofit like that. In your story, you wrote that the nation's worst performing malls, those classified industry as C-minus and D-rated, will be hit hardest by the store closures. So, and you cite Green Street Advisors. They estimate that about 30% of all malls fall under these classifications. Nearly a third of shopping malls are at risk of dying off as a result of store closures, and they don't quite have the option of um, transforming vacant space into non-retail space like apartments, as you're talking about this Atlanta experiment. Exactly. And as some people would say that even more than 30 percent of malls are at risk of closure because uh, many of the closures that we've heard about recently are in B-level malls as well. So those will also be in danger of closure. Haley, what about Target? Target at a 52-week low has had a catastrophic year after a, a terrible announcement several weeks ago. The stock was at $84 at a year high. It's now at, at closer to $53. Its market cap is down to $30 billion. Are they also closing stores? Are they thinking about it? I mean, that is certainly unthinkable. We haven't had any announcements yet that Target is closing stores, 
but they are certainly reimagining their stores. They just released a plan recently to redesign 600 of their stores. And one of the redesigns that they're talking about is having a second entrance. And that's one for people who want to come in and browse and make impulse purchases and look at the home goods section and uh, kind of go through all of the departments in the store. And then there's another entrance for quick trips. And that's a place where Target has really uh, not been doing well is that that quick trip. Yeah, the grocery idea or going in. I mean, I, you know, they, they, they have made Many things that you would think uh, really lend themselves to that. For example, CVS, I can fill a prescription there now. Um, the Starbucks, as you walk in, my I go with you know my daughter, and she's like, "Daddy, get me a cake pop." Right? There's a sticky element to Target, but I think other parts are decidedly useless. The electronics department at Target, awful, lagging. I never get the help I need. There's no use in buying anything there. And it's way there. back it's in the way back in the of back. the store. True. Um, I think about the grocery section. It's nice. It's pleasant. Uh, I don't think it's price competitive with a Kroger, or if you're in a Florida, certainly it plays a, a distant second or third fiddle to Publix. Um, and the fact that they're going to double down on that, um, yeah, yeah, yes, it is innovate or die. But at some point, a lot of these other players are realizing maybe it's it's shut down. It's actually put some cards down and, and walk away. Yeah, so I think grocery's been a big weakness for them. And so they're really trying hard at, in, in this second entrance, in this entrance for people who want to do a quick shop and just get a couple things on their list. Um, they are going to have the grocery department right there, right when you walk in the door. And they're going to try and make the produce a more uh, focal point of the grocery section. And then they're also going to have sort of grab-and-go items. Like if you want to grab something really quick to eat for lunch, they're going to have some freshly produced packaged items for you to walk in and grab lunch and maybe get some flowers or uh, some some items from another department, some merchandise that you might need for, for just a quick trip to grab in and, and go. They will also have uh, spots, parking spots right out front of that quick trip entrance where if you order stuff online from Target, their employees will actually bring your order out to you and that may include groceries as well. So they're really trying to play up this convenience factor with these giant big bags box stores that so few people want to spend time, uh, you know, browsing and really spending too much time walking through to just get one or two things. Haley, haven't they had activists on them in the past? They have. I mean, you would unlock as many things as you can, the kind of the real estate play. And I don't know if Bill Ackman was on Target or someone else. I I forget. But, you know, when your stock falls this low, you also lose uh, self-determination. It kind of chums the waters for people to come in and force you to maybe make more short sided decisions to goose the stock. If an institutional investor comes in and declares, well, I have 7% of your stock, I get to make some of the calls, I get a board seat. Uh, this is the problem actually writ large with being publicly traded and, and being in an environment where you might prefer to actually be private and shutting down stores and taking care of this dirty laundry outside of the world of, of, of hyper-public quarterly earnings releases. It's hard because when you hear about all these stores shutting down, I mean, it seems like such a doomsday thing. But at the same time, analysts are really happy that a lot of these department stores are shutting down stores because they've been overstored for so long. There's so many unprofitable stores out there, and they really do need to... To, to reduce their retail footprint in order to start seeing sales gains again. Um, you know, one of these great success stories coming out of the Great Recession that doesn't get a lot of press, maybe because it's an Ohio-based uh, behemoth, is Kroger. That stock has been on fire. Their expansion, their acquisitions have been on fire. And uh, ever since moving to Virginia, one thing that has really caught my eye here is 
You talk about doubling down. I mean, they're not content to just specialize on Kroger and the Kroger, um, you know, organic versus non-organic experience. But you go to a place like, you know, in the old abandoned Chesterfield Mall in central Virginia where they built this massive Kroger, which was like for a time was the biggest on the East Coast where you could buy lawn furniture. They had a kid's clothing department. They had a jewelry section. Uh, They brought in a cheese store. uh, Was it Murray's Cheeses from New York? And – You know, the next thing is they realized that Wegmans is coming to town. So I went to a quote-unquote marginal Kroger in the shopping mall district called Short Pump, and they're all like building out a laundromat, I think, a pizza thing. It's like, we got to get our act together. You know, Wegmans is coming to town. I was like, again, I understand you need to innovate or die. You need to make an effort, but there's just already too much. And if you're building into a corridor – that is already overbuilt with malls and everything else. You're you're kind of banking on a certain level of foot traffic and disposable income that just might not materialize. Yes, and I think that's a really good analysis. I mean, you Kroger getting into apparel probably isn't a great idea when apparel sales have been plunging for years. But I think what they're trying to do is maybe compete a little bit with the Targets of the world, the Walmarts of the world. And uh, that I, I'm not sure how that will all play out. But Kroger as a grocery store is definitely killing it. They've done, they've done a great job so far in terms of giving Whole Foods, for example, a run for its money by expanding uh, its organic food options so much over the last several years and its natural food options as well. I mean, they now have several aisles just devoted to these goods. So you don't have to go through the whole grocery store to find what you want in the natural food aisle. Um, But something I would bring up is that Aldi and Lidl, which are these German discount grocers, are coming uh, rapidly growing. Aldi's already here and it's rapidly growing across the U.S. And Lidl is coming and they are opening about 100 stores, I believe, in the next year. And that is going to be a huge upset. I mean, those stores upset the biggest grocery retailers in the U.K. and sent them into a crippling price war. And that is going to happen in the U.S. as well. And Kroger is going to be one of the the biggest losers in that uh, war. Right. And you know that something must be up. I don't know. If, I, I swear I saw this. There was a BuzzFeed listicle on like power shopping moves at, at Aldi. <laughs> like, you know, you're patched into the millennial mindset. Aldi, Lidl, you know, we're in an area now where Publix is taking over, where where Ahold stepped back uh, with Martins. And I, I still, I think that a lot of these players might be cruising for a bruising. I mean, you take Target here, which is in a really weak position and is is putting out, is leaking out these plans to have a, a second entrance where you can come in for grocery shopping. I always thought, and you would think that grocery shopping was a crap business. I mean, these players, didn't Albertson's LBO, I mean, wasn't it terrible? This is a low single digit margin business. You're going to take loss leaders on things like kind of canned kidney beans. You're hoping to sell more prepared foods, but they've taken away market share from the organic world and they're hitting Whole Foods, which is also on the brink of distress, which is thinking about smaller stores and 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 rethinking plans of expansion. I mean, it's like it's like they're all jumping in and doubling down at a time when you're convinced that there is tremendous overcapacity across retail. That's a really great point. <laughs> Grocery is a really low margin business. And there are many analysts who have said that Target should be getting out of grocery altogether, that there should be they shouldn't waste their time, their money in investing more in grocery. Of course, Target argues the opposite, but uh, it's studies have shown that customers just don't go to Target for their groceries. They go there for other things and then, oh, I need a few grocery items. I'm already here. I may as well pick some of those up. But they don't go there for their main grocery shop. It seems that Target with these new 
plans are trying is trying to, uh, you know, change that, uh, change that shopping habit and try and become a destination for groceries. But it's it's difficult to imagine uh, too much runaway success with that in a world where Aldi and Lidl are so rapidly expanding, Kroger's ramping up its investments. And, you know, it's, it's just becoming such a crowded market. That is the mellifluous voice of Haley Peterson, senior correspondent for Business Insider, where she covers retail, dying malls, restaurants, all of that stuff. Uh, I do want to get back to, to to Amazon, after all, which is um, it's on this week's cover of The Economist, where is it is kind of almost at this point, it's like too big to fail. Uh, and they're getting a pass. This has been a really forgiving capital markets backdrop where – Wall Street is like, go ahead. You're getting a pass. We're not looking at you on same-store sales. Yes, Jeff Bezos, go go off the reservation and buy the Washington Post. Sure, you know, Amazon Web Services might go out, but that's okay. You guys own Zappos. Um, you own, what was it, diapers.com that they bought? I mean, I totally forgot. They have they have all these different tentacles Amazon does. They have Now IMDb. they're becoming a leader in fashion as well. Fashion as well. And I want to I wanna kind of get at this idea that do you believe that the Amazon same-day delivery, the grocery element, is going to work much the same way Fresh Direct in Manhattan? It took over the boroughs? In Manhattan, it makes so much sense because you don't have a car most of the time. So you don't want to lug all of your groceries back to your apartment. That makes so much sense. In a place where um, you have a car in the suburbs, uh, that that makes less sense. But for someone who's time-strapped, um, I, I will openly admit I'm a Blue Apron customer. I get my groceries delivered to at least half my week's groceries delivered to my door every week. And I love it because I don't have to think about what I'm cooking that week. And I don't have to think about going to the grocery store at the beginning of the week. So uh, have, being a consistent customer of that company, I can see how these this same day delivery of groceries could work. You know, um, on my trusty MacBook here, the adapter frayed several weeks ago. And it's something that, you know, manufactured obsolescence by Apple. And they said, you should go to the Apple store and have the Genius Bar look at it. And it was in that big flashy mall on the West End. And it was so unpleasant parking and going in there. Um, And my options were I could buy a replacement original manufactured part from Amazon. And I'm an Amazon Prime member, same day delivery, and not have to deal with the you know, the a-holes at the Apple store. Sorry to say making that. It's an never been, making an appointment. Making an appointment. It's just so pretentious. Um, I love my Apple products. I've never enjoyed the Apple retail experience. But, you know, it's an antisocial thing, but I'm getting what I want, and it's delivered to me. And these guys aim to please. They make it effortless. My wife buys something on Amazon every day. If it's a bib for the kids, if it's, you know, uh, certain sleep diapers, it's just become intuitive for us. And you hear that sucking sound. Everything is being sucked into that, including, I imagine, perishables and groceries at some point. And I completely agree. I think that uh, one of the things that Amazon has done well is not create for for Amazon Prime members. That is, there's no real burden to just getting, you know, a set of batteries on Amazon and just just, just purchasing that. Whereas uh, companies like Jet.com, they'll encourage you through certain ways to build a bigger package to add more things to your package so that they can save a little bit on shipping. And so they make sure Surely that. Surely you think about that. How do they afford to take that kind of hit? Even if uh, you know, originally I was paying fifty bucks on Amazon Prime and I was on my brother's account. Like, 
like they let you share among several people. But now it's like closer to 120, 130. I forgot, but we use it so much that I imagine amortizing it over dozens, maybe hundreds of purchases over the year. And Amazon's not taking a hit on an average customer? I think they are. <laughs> is I it just that Wall Street's not penalizing them yes, for it? Yes, I think that that's what it is. And and Walmart has has been slower to get to the free two-day shipping because they've been trying to not lose money on that. But it is an extremely expensive thing to do, especially when you have customers that are buying just one item. And to to be able to pay for the packaging for that, um, it's, it's tough. And it's not really a profitable business. But the... The positive to that is that you get people hooked on your business and you become the kind of customer who doesn't care when the Prime membership goes up $10 because you're already so ingrained in this habit of just clicking to Amazon whenever you need one or two items. And that's become indicative of the subscription economy, which is one of those cliche things that we throw out with the experience economy. We saw something that GM is looking at a subscription service where you could subscribe to different cars, right? It, it it goes back to this kind of fear of commitment thing with the Target attractive demo of millennials and people in their 30s right now and the ones that will have disposable income. And, you know, we've we've seen stats on Wall Street. This generation is going to inherit something like $30 trillion from their parents and grandparents. And they're the ones who you want to target, whether you're an advertiser, whether you're a retailer, um, you know, whether you're a restaurant right now. And I'm thinking about restaurants, which you you cover really well. Also, a lot of this stuff, the overbuild in restaurants, if you go like, for example, up and down Broad Street or whatever the main retailing corridor is in your town, you see a Carabas, you see a Chili's, you see a Chewy's. I, I own stock in Chewy's, I should say that. Red Lobster, which has been jettisoned by Olive Garden's parent Darden. There was so much overbuild. At some point, like casual restaurants were fetching huge multiples. Chipotle overexpanded. Uh, then that gave a second lease on life to... Uh, what is it? What is the poor man's Chipotle called? I forgot again. Qdoba. Sorry about that. Qdoba. Again, you know, how many different sub chains do we need? How many different pizza chains do we need? Um, what does that do for the McDonald's and the Burger Kings and Wendy's of the world? Uh, casual dining, fast casual. And you're talking about a blue apron world as well. Take me to the restaurant world where there's distress as well. We are seeing Applebee's close. We are seeing Rudy Tuesday's close. There are tons of restaurants closing, and most of them are in the casual dining space like you were talking about earlier, like the Carabas and um, the Ruby Tuesdays, et cetera. And casual dining is an industry term to describe those restaurants where you go in and you sit down and you order from a waiter or a waitress. These days, sometimes you're ordering from a tablet because this is one of the ways that restaurants have tried to make uh, the restaurant experience a little bit less cumbersome in terms of having to wait for someone to come and take your order. And uh, so, so these are the restaurants that have been hit the hardest in the last couple of years because of the rise of what's called fast casual, and that is the Chipotle's of the world, where you can go in and you order your food, you get it immediately, and you sit, you either sit down and you take it out, and it's a much quicker experience with a lot less interaction with an employee, and people just prefer that these days. What about casual? I mean, Chipotle took its hit, too. That was the big disruptor in the sector, and it forced people like Chili's, which used to be innovative, right? I want my baby back, baby back, baby back. <laughs> right. They're now everywhere you look, If to the extent they're still open, they're advertising on price. Anybody who gets a Sunday regional newspaper is getting these coupon offers for Chili's or Olive Garden or these places. Or you you look online, you almost feel bad for Applebee's and these guys. is like, you can eat lunch for $9. 
that's not built into their whole reason for being. You're yes. supposed to go in and order drinks and appetizers and that all seems like it's going away. And you're right. Chipotle has taken a huge hit. And that was accelerated, of course, by the E. coli outbreak that they suffered in late 2015 that has still had their sales very, uh, very much depressed since then. But if you looked at same-store sales, they were contracting before the outbreak. So this is actually something that um, has been going on for a while. People have been kind of growing tired of the menu. Uh, according to studies. And and so and, and once the E. coli outbreak hit, they went elsewhere. They they tried other places and those places became part of their routines. And so they just some many of them just haven't come back to Chipotle. And so I think older players, slightly older players, I mean Chipotle is about 20 years old now, uh, are going to have a, a lot of trouble in the coming years to keep people interested because every other week there is a brand new fast casual Chipotle-esque a restaurant popping up and trying to uh, get people through the doors. And people are getting tired of older menus and they're trying these new places. But, but you know, shoppers these days, they're just not that loyal. Uh, there are studies all the time about how millennials just aren't loyal to brands and to designers. And so it, it's really hard to, once you get in a, a customer through the door, to keep them coming back again and again. That's why rewards programs have become so huge. All of these uh, companies are all these Retailers or these restaurants are trying to get people to sign up for rewards programs to try and get them back through their doors again and again and again. Tell me about the hottest concepts, the outliers there that are better defended against this kind of retail famine. I'll, I'll give you one that may not have any rhyme or reason. Everything else we're talking about, Chick-fil-A. Yes, Chick-fil-A has uh, had some of, speaking of loyalty, Chick-fil-A has had some of the most loyal customers. And that is, of course, a much older brand. I mean, they're decades old. Um, But they have somehow maintained this image among customers that their food, while fast, while fried, is healthier or more wholesome than other fast food Girlfriend, chains. the kale salad, the superfood salad is amazing. It is. It's actually It rocks really my good. world. I thought I would miss the coleslaw, but they, they came in and really definitely did this. And they don't really come out with that many new menu items. Like you look at Burger King and, and Wendy's and McDonald's are constantly coming out with new menu items to get in the news and really pull new customers or, or, or older customers that, ha- or that haven't been there in a while. They really want to get them through the doors again. So they're always innovating these new menu items. Chick-fil-A has has dropped some new menu items over the years like the kale salad, but they're a little bit more deliberate and they really focus on the quality of their core items. And that is really their chicken. And they make sure, and of course you see all the advertisements, it's always about the chicken and and that being the core item, they've never let the quality slip on that. And I think that's why people keep coming back. Not just that, um, you know, Ever since moving to the South, I've I've kind of become a codependent on the brand. I like one of my rituals is Saturday mornings to go in my pajamas in the car through the drive through. It just makes me feel makes me feel real, makes me feel alive, Haley Peterson. <laughs> and I get my chicken biscuit there. They're just so nice to me. They're so friendly. I have not been Jesus bombed yet at um Chick-fil-A, even though I'm Jewish and very Middle Eastern looking. Uh I do like the food. They're clean. 
they're polite. I mean, I, I have yet to walk into the place wearing Lululemon tights or something like that where they might not love me. But that is a brand that, unbeknownst to many, I believe sells more fried chicken now in the United States than KFC. Yes. Unthinkable. It's the number one. By, if you look at sales per restaurant, it's the number one fast food chain in the U.S. And I, I spoke to, I actually went down to Atlanta and visited uh, the first ever Chick-fil-A and uh, visited the corporate offices. And uh, everyone at the corporate office is just as friendly as those people that you will find in the restaurants. And they're all walking around with their Chick-fil-A styrofoam cups and, you know, waving to everyone. Every, they know each other. Everyone knows each other by name in the corporate office. It's kind of a, a I don't want to have make this a bad connotation, but it's kind of a cultish workplace. They're all just so happy and friendly. Um, and, and I spoke to a hiring manager at one of the Chick-fil-A's there, and he said that one of the things they look for when they hire people in the restaurants is whether or not they care about cleanliness. He will um, drop, this this hiring manager will drop a napkin or a cup on the floor when he's interviewing someone and purposefully in the restaurant, and he'll watch to see if on the way walking towards him, if they will notice what's on the floor and pick it up or leave it there. And that's one of his tests to see whether they're aware of the environment around them and they they want uh, to you know, clean up after customers if they care about the way that a restaurant looks, even though they're not working there yet. But inherent in that is if you if you do your research, I, I remember the, the Kathy family came to Business Week. We interviewed them, the founding family of Chick-fil-A, several years ago. This is well before Chick-fil-A got yeah, that, that flagship in New York. I mean, used to have to go to the cafeteria at NYU to get your sandwich. Um, there's... Inherent that if you put in the hard work and the sweat equity, you get a chance at ownership. And Chick-fil-A managers and regional managers do really well. Yes, and it's really hard to own a Chick-fil-A restaurant, to 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 rise up and own a Chick-fil-A restaurant. I mean, you have to be sort of start from the beginning, like you just said, start from the bottom um, as, you know, a server in a restaurant to make your way up through the ranks and own your own restaurant. And they also have limitations on how many restaurants you can own, whereas people, some of the biggest franchise owners in at McDonald's have... 40, 50, 60 restaurants, Chick-fil-A, it's like three tops. <laughs> yeah. So they 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 really make sure that uh, who the people that own their restaurants are really involved in the day-to-day operations. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they've been able to uh, keep and to, to hire, attract, and keep such good talent in their restaurants. In the few minutes we have left, what are some of the other outliers that are kind of bucking the trend across retail? It's hard. It's, it's hard to hard. think about it's it because really hard. people are, uh, by and large, contracting or, or reimagining right now. Like you talk about the target reimagination thing, but are there are there concepts out there that are just dying to expand? I have this dream, Haley, where I imagine that I bring In and Out Burger and Chick Fil A together <laughs> somewhere in Kansas, and they agree to expand internationally and make me CEO and give me stock, and we have a blockbuster IPO, <laughs> and I get a ticker tape parade and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. But I don't know if that's going to save retail. I think there are tons of regional chains that are doing well, like you mentioned, In and Out. Uh, but I think those that have expanded too fast and gone public and expanded too fast, they're not. There's so few I can think of. What happens to an idiosyncratic high overhead chain like a Bass Pro Shops? If people are just getting used to this idea, and they do sell experiences, you could see, you know, fish go after lures in a tank, right? You could you could go into this ersatz pond in the front, but uh, again. That doesn't really apples to apples when I look at a Staples, which is contracting also and and was supposed to be the 
winner of the office supply wars? Look, I think that there will always be some uh, purpose for retail stores. I just think it's going to be far less in number than what we have today. There are still plenty of people, myself included, who with some things, we just want to touch, feel things before we buy them or there's an immediate gratification. I need this battery. I need this right now. I'm not going to even wait two days for Amazon to uh, deliver it to me. And and there's also people who want to go to the store and pick out their produce. Uh, you know, sometimes when you get your produce delivered to you, it's just, it's, it's, it's not always exactly the way you want it to look. So I think there always will be some sort sort of purpose for for brick and mortar stores, but it's going to drastically change over the next decade. Uh, Finally, uh, do you foresee something, actually, when you talk to Wall Street analysts, you talk about this conference in Miami of a a, some sort of reflux back into Wall Street that this taints that, you know, we had the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s and early 90s and commercial property and took several banks down. That is very specific to bad behavior that a lot of, of, of banks partook in and there were regulatory asterisks as well. Is this something that that part of your mind wonders could take down the entire economy? I mean, the overbuild is so staggering. I'd hate to speculate and say that, but at the same time, the bankruptcy lawyer I spoke to yesterday who is, is down at the M&A conference, she's saying that this, this is, that this is like the next crisis. And um, there's just, there's a lot of ways that, uh, a lot of industries that depend on retail and malls staying in business. And of course, there are a malls that are doing just fine. Um, actually, tenancy is is at an all-time high in A-malls, and uh, these are malls that are anchored by stores like Saks and Neiman Marcus. Uh, these are luxury malls in very um, – in neighborhoods, in communities that uh, have – that make a lot of money. They're very wealthy. But uh, the rest of the malls, there's only, I think, about 300 of those A-level malls. And um, there's about 1,300 malls throughout the U.S. So that just tells you, I mean, we may get to a point where it's just those 300 malls still open. And we'll all be crowding uh, into the Chick-fil-A, which I saw, by the way, uh, my closest Chick-fil-A now rationalized the drive-through line. And they put these cones out and they they doubled the size of the drive-through line. And they have iPads and you can pay with your app and you could pay with Apple Pay. Um, even if there are 20 cars at lunchtime, you can kind of get in and out at five minutes. Look, I didn't mean to plug Chick-fil-A. They don't sponsor <laughs> us. Uh, I just think their chicken is delicious. Um, close us out. What else should I be watching? What else is on your radar? What are you going to be covering next? Let's see. I think that Sears is probably going to be a huge story for the remainder of the year. I mean, we've with with the information they've given us recently that their uh, their their business is is a going concern, meaning it's it's a, it, there's a lot of doubt that they could actually stay in business. I think we might see this behemoth possibly file for bankruptcy in the not too distant future. That's like waiting for Godot because we've been waiting for five, <laughs> six, seven years for it to happen. I'll just say I am holding out hope as in this. Nostalgist. Um, again, Haley, I know this is neither here nor there. We're generationally different. You're, you're decidedly millennial. I'm a 40-something schlub. But one of the things I never got to do in my 38, 39 years since coming to the United States from Iran is go to a steak and ale. <laughs> and it was aspirational for me as a kid. I thought, you're going to grow up, kid, and you're going to have enough money to go like to a steak and ale and take your family to a steak and ale. And that, that chain went under in the 2008 crisis. But there was this hint that they would come back, that they would be restored to glory and that 
somebody, you know, I believe in Texas went out and bought the intellectual property to it. But now I wonder if there's any need for Stick and Hill to come back. I know you look at like Blockbuster, for example. I mean, it's crazy that you'll, your kids will never even know what that is. Oh, but they do know Netflix really well and Apple <laughs> TV. Thank you so much, Haley Peterson. Business Insider's senior correspondent, retail guru, it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Find us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at FullDRadio, on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Like us, sponsor us if you like. We are omni-channel, same-store sellouts who ship free on Amazon Subprime. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Closing time, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings. 